0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
2: Hello, I'm Anita Arnand, and thank you for downloading BBC Radio 4's Any Answers, the sister programme to Any Questions. Hello and welcome to the programme today. We would like to hear from you about applying to Oxford, Cambridge and other top universities. What should they be doing to attract students from all backgrounds? Also, how should we work out how much to pay the EU? And do you have experience of universal credit? Do let us know if you agree with many MPs that it should be put on hold. Sexual harassment at work has been highlighted by the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Get in touch with your views on how to tackle it and that huge decline in flying insects should that be at the top? of our agenda. Our number is 03700 100 You can text us on 84844 or tweet using hashtag BBCAQ or email any.answers at bbc.co.uk That's uh, 03700 100 444 Now I'd like to start today with what uh, MP David Lammy calls social apartheid, the background of students at Oxford and Cambridge. We've had lots of calls on this and I'd like to go first to Wales to Merthyr. The Tidville and Jonathan Morgan, a school teacher. Jonathan.
3: Well, actually, I don't live in Merthyr Tidville, I live in Aberdeer, so I think your uh, record keeper got that wrong. <laughs> My comment on top universities is there needs to be a quota of children from state schools allowed in and a quota of children who come from free school meal backgrounds if you look at the intake at Oxford and Cambridge and some of the other top universities as well, we're looking at figures around 40% of all places go to privately educated school children. Now only about 7% of children in, in Britain go to private schools. Therefore I agree with what Mr Lammy has said, it is essentially a privately educated clique and that's also feeds through into general society. If you look at the top ends of professions, law, accountancy, banking, medicine, they're dominated by the privately educated Oxbridge people, just as the BBC is, unfortunately.
2: Jonathan, I'd like you to stay on the line because I'd like to now bring in uh, Professor Peter Milliken uh, and uh, Professor Milliken is uh, in charge of admissions at Hartford College at Oxford University. Do you agree that there is bias and in fact that there are an awful lot more privately educated uh, children and students going to Oxford uh, than, uh, than there are uh, across the board at others at other schools?
4: Yeah first I'd, I'd like to make clear I run admissions for uh, PPE and computer science and philosophy and other joint degrees in philosophy at Hartford. I'm not responsible for admissions across the college as a whole, Um, but obviously I'm intimately involved uh, in that. I don't think there's any bias or systematic bias in our recruitment procedures. Um, We do our best to find the students who've got the best potential to do well in our degrees, but I, I... agree with Jonathan that, that there are real problems in our education system um, and the trouble is that we're not getting enough students from uh, very poor backgrounds who who are at the age of 17 and um, who have the potential to do really well in our degrees. The quota idea is an interesting one, um, but it might be very risky. If you uh, get students coming to Oxford or Cambridge, particularly in the technical subjects, who simply aren't academically prepared enough, they will struggle. You're setting them up for failure. Now, you could say, OK, in that case, what we ought to do is decrease the standard of our degrees. But if you do that, that's got a risk because the universities will lose some of their elite status. And that will be bad for our other students. It may be bad for the country.
2: Do you think that, that uh, if you have children, if you have students coming from poorly performing comprehensives, for example, that they perhaps, uh, if they get an A at A level, that that perhaps does equate to uh, an A star from a student at a top independent school because they simply have had an awful lot more, uh, an, an awful lot better start in life?
3: Well, it's
4: possible, but in, in our admissions processes, we're not relying heavily on the A levels in general. Um, we're giving them our own tests and we're giving them interviews in order to try to see what they're like thinking on their feet about the kinds of things that they won't have been prepped for at school. That's exactly why we do it that way. Uh, because so are you saying
2: then that, they, that, that when you do that, that, uh, that students uh, from comprehensive school backgrounds aren't, aren't as good as the ones that have gone to, to private schools? Well, Many
4: of them will be, but you see, you can't have it both ways. If you say that the education from Oxford and Cambridge and other top universities is giving people a very strong advantage in life by increasing their potential, uh, their ability to study well, to learn quickly, etc., It's bound to be the case that people who've had a really good education at home and at school for 14 years between, you know, the ages of four and 18, they're bound to perform better. They're bound to have more potential than someone who's had absolutely rubbish education over that time. So, you know, it it is inevitable that people who've had really good schooling, not only will they perform better, you know, on the day because they've been prepped or whatever, but in some areas, particularly in in mathematics, notably, um, they are going to be able to work much better over the following three or four years as well. So, you know, there's, there's no easy way around this. I mean, I'd like to see us doing more at a very much earlier age, with bright children from poor backgrounds so that we can actually do something systematically to get them up to the level that they can not only get into the top universities but thrive there.
2: Professor Milliken, thank you very much. Uh, Jonathan Morgan, I'd like to come back to you. As a teacher, what do you think of the students that you're teaching? Are they bright enough to go to Oxford and Cambridge?
3: I, 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 53% of my pupils got an A in history in 2016 and they went off to places like Cardiff to do law, to do English... To do history, but the thing is, you see, the other issue with going to university is the cost. Mm. It's the fees, and it's the living expenses. And for a lot of pupils and a lot of families, where I am in Rotherham and Taff, we've got a lot of pupils. 33% of my pupils are free school meal pupils. Outside of the free school meal pupils, a lot of the pupils I teach, their parents might not qualify for free school meals, but they're low-income families. And they then can't afford to go to places like Oxford and Cambridge because of the living costs involved. May I just, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but
2: but Um, may I just ask you, did any of them apply? How many of your students would apply to Oxford and Cambridge?
3: Right, I'm not the head of sixth form, so I couldn't Mm -hmm. say for definitely. We've got four applying this year. And quite frankly, if one of those doesn't get an offer from from Oxford, it'll be a, a crime a crime. And this thing goes back many decades. A very good friend of mine in the late 40s got 10 A's at o, at o level but attended a Welsh comprehensive, went to interview in Oxford and was turned down. There isn't a single child at Eton or Harrow or St Paul's or Westminster or Cheltenham Ladies College that would walk into an Oxford interview with 10 A's at, G- G- at O-level, well, GCSE then, or 10 A-stars and would walk away without a place because these institutions are, institu- are have institutional bias against people from regions like South Wales or parts of the north of England.
2: Jonathan Morgan, thank you. Uh, now I'd like to go to uh, Margaret Casely-Hayford, uh, who is Chancellor at Coventry University.
1: Hello. Thank you for um, including me in the conversation. My point is um, actually... In sympathy with um, uh, Jonathan from Aberdare, um, it is the fact that um, I think that, that there can be more done actually to help the children who come from uh, state schools through closed scholarships. And when I was at Oxford, which is some time ago now, um, numbers of the public schools had closed scholarships to specific Oxford colleges. So, for example, Worcester College had specific places that were earmarked for boys from Winchester. Mm-hmm. Eton boys um, had um, uh, specific places. That that, that no longer British happens, Church. but do you think it that it no longer it no longer happens? But it certainly did for decades, mm-hmm. and I and, and I think it can't have, it can't have done in, uh, any harm to all the pupils who will have had a, a relatively uh, much simpler. Um, access arrangements for getting into those colleges, and I think that the same sort of arrangement should pertain for added value state schools. Um, and and uh, that would actually could actually be linked, for example, to ensuring that specific postcodes which are identified to have a, a lower participation rate in higher education should be to to, to be um, uh, more profoundly encouraged to come forward. I mean, it's perfectly possible because Coventry University does
2: it. Okay, Margaret Casely-Hayford from Coventry University, thank you very much indeed. I'd like to read out a couple of uh, emails. Uh, This is from uh, Benedict Winchester. He says, I don't think that we can simply tell the universities to accept a greater number of state-educated or minority students, as this is more of a bodge than actually fixing the problem, which I believe has two main causes, a lack of outreach and a fault in the state education system. And uh, one from John Hodgett here, and this does echo a number of comments we've had. I suspect that the majority of a child's academic potential is determined long before they go to school. If the parents are able to provide a safe, supportive and stimulating environment at home, then it's more likely that the kids will do well in school. I'd like to go now to uh, Warrington in Cheshire and our caller, Norma Hornby. Norma.
5: Hello, thank you for telephoning me. I'm coming from a different background, but I fully sympathised with the uh, people who've just been on the programme um, I worked with young people through youth services throughout my whole career and I hope we haven't, all the best times haven't gone, but by addressing the barriers um, to university with young people who come from very deprived backgrounds, it has over the last 12 years been possible to engage them in, in a wide range of activities outside school, so they were underachieving in school. But by, this is from a charity basis, we were able to look at the barriers, help them overcome them and to provide them with such a wide range of learning opportunities. They they all got first class honours degrees in Russell Group
2: universities. Practically, what kind of help were you able to give them?
5: Well, it was mainly about helping them understand that they had to learn outside school as well as inside school. But it was also support in terms of confidence, critical thinking, learning to speak in public, learning to manage budgets and helping them understand that because their parents and families hadn't had a chance of higher education, Mm. this was theirs. And We were able to attract a lot of additional funding. I was a school governor as well. But through the charity, we had marvellous benefactors, including a family in Tuscany who, for nine years, took young people over there for an educational programme. European funding enabled them to travel. And when they did achieve university, they were competing on almost equal terms with their peers from deprived backgrounds. And my worry is some of those young people are now working in Canada, they're working in Japan, and this is from Halton, a deprived community. But to me, very exciting work. There's an innate um, intelligence in some of those young people, which teachers are absolutely run off their feet trying to work with young people from all backgrounds. But by working with the school and with other services... These young people haven't just flourished, they achieved Students of the Year awards. And my worry is now that there are two things blocking this type of project happening again, and I did it for 14 years. And one of them is that austerity measures have really impacted upon youth services have been decimated and local charities
2: And and, and the other one Norma?
5: The other one is the NAGTI gifted and talented cohorts which the government introduced 2002 to 2010.
2: Okay, well, that's very interesting. Norma, thank you very much indeed for sharing it with us. We will have to leave it there because we've got an awful lot of calls on this, but thank you. I'd like to go now to Cambridge and to David Williams, who's a lecturer at St. John's, Cambridge. David. Yes,
6: hi. One of of your original uh, contributors. That we were passionate about about encouraging people from from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds to come, and I can't uh, say that that too much. I'm personally from from a comprehensive school. I was the first person to to come to Cambridge from from my school, and I'm so keen to get similar people in like that. We work with the Sutton Trust, trying to get students from from such schools uh, to to. to to apply we do taster days through the summer I have students I'm a vet myself and I have students coming in doing a couple of days work with me seeing how the university works to be able to make them realise that it's possible to do that
2: can I ask has it got any easier since you you were the first person from your comprehensive to get to Cambridge has it got any easier since then are you seeing more students getting in
6: well, I think, personally, we do, because we try and attract so many. I'm working with a, a North London Academy at the moment. I'm going to go and do their their, their prize-giving um, uh, evening and speak of that in a few weeks. If I can get, and um, we have a wonderful day um, last term with them, I did a mock interview of their of their head of biology, which was fun for everyone, and sh- showed what the thing they might expect in an interview. You can imagine a student from that sort of environment won't have a clue what's going to happen in an an interview and so whereas someone from a public school is probably going to be well coached in in that indeed yeah, and is,
2: indeed in London it does know. seem that London uh, that London does better uh, in their state well, we school do, system but what about all all the rest of the country
6: yeah I know so that was just one particular example we have we have uh, we have uh, a school liaison officer who works particularly in st John's with lots of lots of schools from uh, from the north I have veterinary students who've come from um, from from the north of England so certainly We are as open as as possible for that. The only trouble is, if I've got someone who's coming from a disadvantaged background, I can't say, "Oh, come on, we'll we'll allow you to come in with three Bs and expect somebody from from a public school to get." To get two A stars and an A, something. So we can't have. We've got to have a level playing field to some extent from that perspective. But of course, the level playing field that they're coming from, well, the playing field they're coming from is certainly not level. So it's difficult to to try and work out how to encourage them. I think the key thing is it's just getting them to to apply to start with. I say to the student because one thing I can absolutely guarantee you, if you don't apply, you won't get in. So why not? What have you got to lose? Come, um, come around, see what the what schools are uh, what the college is like. Talk to some of the other students that are here, and then apply and so we 've got some fantastic students uh, through the southern Trust um, who 've come. From environments that really you oh. wouldn 't they wouldn 't have expected
2: to okay to david David do williams that. from cambridge that 's thank you very much we 'll have to leave it there i 'd like to get on to uh, Chris Barton from Stoke on Trent. Uh, Chris, you think that we are obsessing too much about oxbridge
7: well, I do, and so did Mr. Stanley, which is how he started his own uh, contribution. Unfortunately, he then ignored his own advice and did what the rest of them did, and talked wholly about um, two of our 130 universities which here in year out take fewer than two percent of our students now the problem is that whilst it is true and i know because i have taught Oxbridge grounds and jolly goodly worth too while it is true uh, that they tend to be an elite group of students that only remains the case because there is a self-perpetuating myth uh, that they are the only two that will provide good service to our students If one looks at the results of the Teaching Excellence Framework, for example, earlier in the summer, we uh, notice that three, at least three, of the self-chosen Russell Group of universities, they were Southampton, Liverpool, London School of Economics, got the worst possible award. On the other hand, you have new universities, mainly former Polytechnics, Bournemouth, Coventry, De Montfort, Derby, Falmouth, Lincoln and uh, Nottingham Trent, and I apologise for those who haven't uh, been included in that long list, who got the top award, the Gold Star.
2: Okay, well, I think that's an interesting point, Chris, to to, to move it away from Oxbridge. Thank you very much indeed for uh, sharing your views with us. I'd like to go move now to uh, Susie Moss in Fulham in London. Susie?
8: Yes, I, I, I just wanted to make it very clear that I think this idea that these posh kids that are privately educated are handed their qualifications on a plate and they have to work their socks off to get the results they get nobody's doing the work for them and you know i think compared to a lot of state school children kids at private school they're in lessons from eight in the morning until six in the afternoon they're in mathematics on a on a saturday morning when some of the state school kids may have been doing sleepovers and you know socializing at the weekend and i think this idea that private school educates is uh, children are, are are given a free pass into these universities um, is wrong also because a lot of privately educated children are actually aware that they have to almost come across even more strongly because it's held against them that they that it's almost held against them that they've been given this slightly more privileged room to just, get their There, there
2: are about, at Oxbridge, there are about 40% are privately educated and, and there are only 7% of privately educated uh, children across the country. So it does seem that, well, it's, it's a fact that they are there in much higher proportions.
8: Well, I, I accept that. But I think that a, a lot of the reason for that is that a lot of parents that send their children to private schools, it's not always just writing out a cheque and packing them off to someone that the work's done, you know, that the kids are just handed that sort of good results on the plate. A lot of the time, the whole environment of a private school is that the kids are a lot more focused on achieving and and the parents are too. And that's not to say that I'm going against a lot of children at state school, but, you know, again, my daughter will work right the way through the night if she's got an exam the next morning. You know, she'll be going to the library at 3 o'clock in the morning and there will be other children there that are living and working in a massively intense environment. And it's not that the teachers are better at private schools. Frequently, they're not. Um, It's just that that work ethic... Is begun from a, from an early age. Okay. Um, okay. And I, I think it's wrong to say these kids are given an advantage. They work for everything they've got, regardless uh, of whether they're at private school or not. Susie
2: Moss, thank you very much indeed. I'd like to move on now to uh, talk about this huge decline in flying insects. Uh, I did pose the question should that, that be at the very top of our agenda? Uh, we do have uh, Sue Spencer from uh, Herefordshire, who's a keen gardener. Sue?
9: Ah, hello. Yes, I would have put it at the top of my list too, on my agenda um like thousands of gardeners all over the land I recently put in a bulb border um choosing particularly bee friendly um bulbs and and then read in the press an article which told me that um these bulbs are likely to be to have been drenched with neonicotinoids which I think it's becoming more widely understood now is very damaging to bees and worms in fact they're poisoned by it
2: so this so is something thought, we should be looking out for
9: Well, absolutely. Well, I beg your pardon?
2: This is something that we should be looking out for when we we buy bulbs? Indeed,
9: because I found myself quite unable to follow this order up and actually to, to, to think that I was buying bulbs, which would be attracting bees, but they would also be damaging the bees so that they wouldn't be able to function normally. So I was able to cancel my order, and I have to admit that the company I ordered from was very helpful. But I was told by them that from Holland to Japan... Um, these uh, bulbs and and plants, fruit trees and what have you, are being drenched with neonicotinoids. In fact, I was told, if it flowers, then it will be being used. Except for some growers in the Netherlands, which are actually beginning to change their practice. But people are buying, it seems to me, bee-friendly plants,
10: which in fact are not.
2: Sue, thank you very much indeed. And uh, Stuart Wilkie in Norfolk.
10: Good afternoon, yes. Well, following on from that, um, the neonicotinoids could have been banned in Europe several years ago, and unfortunately it was Britain that um, prevented a two-year moratorium study being done. And the, the effect of the neonicotinoids on the bees, and perhaps on wasps and a um a uh, uh, um, pleasant creature that she like, enjoys killing, um, they, the wasps, the wasp see aphids, the bees we know produce the honey and do all the pollination for us, Where these neonicotinoids work, they don't necessarily directly kill them. They they become disorientated and they don't get back to their own hives. So what the government should be doing is a two-year moratorium, listen to the gardeners, listen to the beekeepers, and obviously do double-blind scientific studies in the UK, and let's prove unequivocally whether or not the neonicotinoids are having an effect. It's not just on the flying insects. Where are the birds? There's a dearth of birds. I live in the country. I'm surrounded on three sides by sprayers. And we have no birds. 20 years ago, our garden was full of birds.
2: Stuart, thank you very much indeed for that. We're getting quite a lot of tweets on this too. Vast areas of land are coated in insecticide for wind and weather to move around. It's little wonder that the insect balance is suffering. But I'd like to move on now uh, just to talk a little bit about universal credit. And we've got Jeff O'Connell in Belford in Northumberland. Jeff,
11: Andrea, yes, Um, I'm... I've never been a member of a political party, so I'm taking a completely objective view. Please, you know, I'm explaining that. And the fact is, we have a system which has six uh, credits available to applicants. They are in receipt of it. Now, the government wishes to change the administration. Now, that can take six to eight or more weeks. Now, why can't those existing payments continue during the period until that assessment has been made, a value has been reached, and then they can implement it or discuss it? But the fact is, to deprive people of money, I think, is absolutely absurd. I think it's cruel, and I think it's wrong. I haven't heard one politician ask the question, and I don't see why, if the system exists and many people are still receiving under it, that they can't just keep on paying it until the government's got the job together. It's wrong, it's cruel, and I I think it's so imprecise, it's wrong.
2: Jeff, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Sarah Starkey in Tombridge in Kent.
12: Oh, hello. I couldn't agree more with that gentleman. I think he's absolutely right. I think the other appalling part is that those at the bottom of the heap have more stress, have less control anyway. And it is understood the less control you have over your life, the more likely you are to get stressed and have mental problems. This country is so rife with mental problems that um, <clears throat> it's now being discussed that uh, the NHS it just can't cope and that we should have more psychiatrists and more, no, more uh, talking therapies and what have you because people are in a dreadful, dreadful state. So what does this government do? It makes sure that yet more people are going to need this national health, mental health uh, facilities which don't exist because they are so... Because they don't know if they'll be able to keep their homes, if they will be able to afford to mend things when they're broken. Just generally, does this government, who many of them um, will have either private incomes and or directorships and goodness knows what else, do they have any understanding of what it is like for people who have nothing and have nothing to fall back on? The sort of people who run our country have mummy and daddy who bought them their home, have um, uh, uh, family money and will be able to sell something if they were in dire straits, a painting or something. These people at the bottom of the heap have nothing. And we are just sending more and more people to have mental problems and stresses. And I, I, I just it is beyond wicked what is going on.
2: Sarah, thank you very much indeed for that. A quick email here as well from Roy McGuffin. He says the problem lies not with the policy but with the implementation. The roll from a software development perspective does not seem to be that difficult. Best to get a bunch of kids from Facebook or Twitter and a system will be up and working by the end of the year. Well, I'd like to move on now to the thorny issue of the uh, EU divorce bill and how the UK should handle it. And go first to uh, Andrew Pearson in Billinghurst and West Sussex. Andrew.
13: Hello. Uh, Well, I just wanted to make the point that I think we need to face a reality, which is that the EU cannot afford to give us a decent deal. Why? Because they must show everybody else that they're punishing us for leaving the EU, because others might want to do the same. In fact, only yesterday the Polish foreign minister said as much in an interview on our television. And it seems to me an absolute irony that. It reminds one of the of the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall was built by Khrushchev not to keep people from coming in, but stop people from getting out. And here we have a situation where the European Union is making sure, they're so insecure in their own situation, they're making sure that people don't leave by making sure we have a massive divorce bill as a kind of wall to keep us from and others from wanting to leave the European Union.
2: Andrew, I'd just like to bring in Ken Daly here from Bridgewater in Somerset.
0: Thank you. First of all, I wanted to say that I thought that Tim, the Brexiteer on your panel, was talking about a fantasy world. And as for the last contributor's uh, comments about the Berlin Wall, I, I long advocated taking down the Berlin Wall because it was obvious that it was part of the Russian Empire. And we needed to bring Europe together. But really, why I say it's a fantasy world is that since the Brexit vote, we have had devaluation. We've had a consequent inflation. This has reduced people's spending power. It's had a huge impact on the retail sector. People are now spending more money on food out of their resources than before. And big ticket items like sofas and so on are just not being bought. We're heading into economic, industrial,
13: political and diplomatic suicide.
2: Uh, Andrew, can I come back to you on that briefly?
13: Well, I, I mean, that's only looking at the economic argument. It seems to me that oh, there's a very good chance we will. Argument, I think there's a very good chance we'll do very economics well.
0: Affe- economics think... affects every person in the country. Yes, well, so does sovereignty. So does sovereignty. You made us you so freedom. So does
13: sovereignty. That's why we fought the Second World War. Oh, for oh, that's why we say, had the Cold we're War. We're not talking about Stop the Second World, World War. We're talking about the future. By, uh, by please being invaded grow by up. people who were not and, and living in the past no you're you're the one i'm afraid is not facing the reality I, I beg your pardon you don't inflation. understand democracy do you you don't it's realize you democracy
0: democracy is what has made europe what it is
2: Okay. well, on that note, on that note, uh, Ken Daly and uh, Andrew Pearson, thank you both very much indeed. We're going to leave it there. It's all we've got time for. Many thanks to everybody who called in, whether we were able to get your views on air or not. And thank you very much indeed for listening. Any answers is back at the same time next week from me. Goodbye. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Any Answers. Don't forget, if you want to hear any questions or you'd like to invite the programme to your venue, then please go to the BBC Radio 4 website and search for Any Questions. I'm Anita Arnand. Thank you for listening.